In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Tonight, we recall the baptism of our Lord, and we'll have tonight a baptism uh, of our own right here at Grace. And I thought it would be a good occasion to speak about, at least in part, the meaning of baptism, why we do this thing. And I'd like to speak about it in light of Paul's words from Galatians. I know that we just did a series on Galatians. We're not going to like do another one, but but just uh, bear with me as we look at two verses from Galatians chapter 3, because I'd like to speak tonight more specifically about a baptismal identity. What does it mean to have an identity that is fashioned and formed by the truths that we discover in the sacrament of baptism? And I've been thinking a lot about identity lately because of David Bowie, really, um, who just passed away. I mean, wasn't he a gift to us in so many ways? He was a profoundly talented musician, uh, and he was, but he was a very complex person, as you may know, and had a persona that was always developing. Uh, And uh, he seemed to be, in some ways, a searching soul, always scratching after a new identity to see which would best fit him. You may know that he began. As sort of a, as sort of a like a fifth beetle in a way, and he and he went through a kind of a preppy phase, and then a hippie phase, and then he went through a thrift store phase, and then he went through it like a transgendered phase, and then he had multiple sexual orientations, as you may know, throughout his life, and then he went through um, like a cocaine phase. And then he went through an actor phase. We all remember Labyrinth, right? You know, Labyrinth. Um, and then he went through a straight-edge phase. And then he went through this older reflective phase. And that's just his personal life, let alone his music, which, which had its own enormous development and changes throughout his career. And, uh, and he reminds me of that George Herbert quote that I like so much, that I am a thousand times myself on any given day. I think that the Christian contention, which is revealed at baptism, is that identity, at least core identity, is never self-generated. Identity is given to us as a gift. Identity is given to us, and that's a relieving word. It's, It's a gift. And so I want to talk tonight about baptism as it gifts us with a religious identity and with a a social unity, a religious identity and social unity. In other words, it connects us to God in the profoundest sense, and it also um, connects us to our fellow pilgrims. So religious identity. Um, uh, That is to say, when a person is baptized, their personhood is submerged into a greater reality that is far beyond them and yet very close and approachable. This is what St. Paul says in verse 27, if you'd like to follow along. Verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I want to look at two words, really, into and on. Both of them entail this notion of Christ having a close proximity to those who have been baptized in his name. But we'll start with the first one. As many of you as were baptized into Christ. It's interesting. He compares Jesus Christ here to water. You see That the person of Jesus is like this pool that you are baptized into, that you're submerged into. 
It's this vastness that you're brought into the middle of. And that's different than how I was raised. I was raised in sort of even 1980s evangelical subculture. It was awesome and terrible at the same time. Um, but, but, but what was constantly uh, put before us is the, was the question, have you invited, you know it, Jesus into your heart, right? It's not, a, it's not dumb. It's not a bad question. It's saying because the Bible understands the heart to be the core of the human person. And so have you had a, a close encounter of the third kind, so to speak? Have you invited the infinite to dwell in you in a permanent way, to forgive you and to love you and to claim you? It's, it's a fine question. But I think uh, in some ways it gives us the wrong picture that, um, that you're the big person and you're, in, you're making a little room for the smaller person to enter in. The Bible most of the time speaks not so much of Christ dwelling in us, though it does speak of that. Most of the time it speaks of us dwelling in Christ, that Christ is the vast idea in which we find our own little lives placed, that we, ha- we can find a home uh, in that bigger concept, that he makes room for us. Uh, the, the image that came to me when I was praying about this sermon uh, was uh, the image of Lake Shawnee, if you know where that is. It's in the middle of Pennsylvania. And it was, it was around a, a, right near a church camp called Living Waters. It was, it was a little dumpy, but I used to go there for like Christian camp in the middle of the summer. And uh, I remember when I was 12 going to this camp. And I was, I was, uh, it was a very tender time because my parents were divorcing. And things were really difficult at home. And, and I didn't know after, the, after a big fight that my parents had had, I didn't know what kind of a home I would be going back to after camp was over. And so things were chaotic and difficult, and I was terribly lonely. But I went to this camp, and we all went to this lake, and, and I remember feeling a great sense of tranquility. I was swimming, and I was surrounded by friends and people that loved me and a really pretty girl that I liked. I lucked out with Monique, by the way. That would have been bad. Um, but uh, she was there, and my friends were there, and it was a beautiful day and very sunny. And I was floating in the water on my back, with your ears under the water, you know, so you can't hear anything. You can just see. I looked at the nature and the, and the, uh, the clouds and the sun. And, and I, for a, just a moment, felt that like, everything that was on my heart and everything that was plaguing me and all of my anxieties uh, melted away because I was submerged in this other idea, this idea of closeness and friendship and connection and warmth. And uh, I remember that tranquility. And, and I think that's sort of what baptism is like, where we are wooed into and incorporated into and, in fact, submerged into a personality and story that is far more vast than our own experience, that has, that has the Spirit's touch to it. There's something about God in what we're doing. This isn't just some empty ritual. This isn't just some water, right? We believe that the Holy Spirit is part of this engagement and can actually affect the human person. And so we're taken into Christ. Many of you were baptized into Christ. And then he says, have put on Christ. The image is like a pool or a lake where you dip in, and then when you come out, you don something else, that the effect of the inness is still with you after you leave the water. We put on Christ that after we leave the water, that we that Christ is now who was water is now clothing. Post baptism, we wear Him. Fascinating image, wearing a person. 
Um, the, the image of, of clothing, first of all, I need to point out, indicates that this new identity that we have in Christ comes to us, always comes to us from the outside. It is never self-generated from the inside. This new identity isn't something that we cook up, scratch after, strive for, but is entirely gifted to us um, as clothes would be laying upon us. Um, and, and, um, and so this is why, friends, that we don't in church baptize ourselves. Somebody else declares the word of God to us. Whatever your name is, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit as a way of showing that this great gift always comes to you from outside. Um, and now I know the idea of wearing a person as clothing is, is something that sounds rather odd, but, but it is a very common idea in the New Testament and one that has multiple meanings. So I'd like to look at just for a moment, what does it mean to put on Christ? Well, it means at least three things in the Bible. The first is that it means we put on Christ's innocence. This is the great scene in Revelation when all of the people who have been redeemed are brought before the throne. It says that there was a multitude in heaven who had washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It means sharing in Jesus' innocence that was gifted to us at the cross. It also means moral nobility, Christ's own character, Romans 13, Put on, then, the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, his noble, uh, his moral nobility. Also, his risen life, 1 Corinthians 15. This perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And so, all of these things are a way of saying that when we are clothed with Christ, we're clothed with his sacrificial innocence, we're clothed with his moral quality that affects us, changes us, and we're clothed with this promise that just as he has gone on and will go on forever, we too will share in those realities. And so baptism is really a vision that God gives us that all of the good things about Jesus, his innocence, his nobility, his risen life, we wear them like a royal robe. We wear them. And you've heard that, that sort of over-the-top, ridiculous phrase to, to sell you clothes you don't need that are far too expensive at the King of Prussia Mall. You know the phrase that the clothes make the man. I don't know anything about that. You may know me. I don't know how to dress at all. I'm not good at it. My wife often tells me in very kind ways, you really shouldn't wear, you know, you shouldn't wear like bright green shirt because it's the winter. You'll look very strange. Um, the clothes make the man. Maybe that's true with Versace. Maybe it isn't. But it certainly is true with Jesus Christ because you've been clothed from outside yourself with this great gift. And what this means is, I know this is trippy, but it's very, very true. When the infinite looks at you, when God looks at you, do you think he hates you? Do you think that you're disgusting to him? Because you're not. What he sees when he looks at you is the innocence and the moral nobility and the risen life of his own son. That's what we call imputation. All of these things are gifted to us, and baptism gives us a vision of that promise and that gift. So I want you to think of baptism, use my image, or replace the lake with something else that you like, but wading into Lake Shawnee, right? You're wading in, and, and it's, it's your shot. It's your shot to leave behind all your old personhood and your 
overly defined self, that self defined by uh, self-protection and regret and ambivalence and self-deception and guilt and deep, deep hurt, that you could leave that behind. You could see it all die away and be submerged into a bigger, calmer, truer, defining story, a defining personality, the one we call Jesus Christ. It could all be covered and all be submerged into something better and deeper. Imagine that, you know, that everything that you hate about yourself tonight, all of it, could be submerged into hushed and healing waters uh, from which you could emerge as a new person, a new being with, um, with the name Christian, which means, as you know, little Christ. You're a Padawan. That you belong. That you're a student of this great master and somebody who's deeply, deeply loved. And that's the idea here. Um, And so that's the religious identity. We've We've been brought into Christ. We've put on Christ. So you are covered with a foreign righteousness. That's what baptism symbolizes to us. Um, But baptism also brings about what could be called a social unity. That's why St. Paul writes in verse 28, connecting it to this idea, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. It's a beautiful and often misrepresented text. It's often spoken of to defend very odd things. Um, this passage. But I want to say from this passage's own testimony, this passage is not about equality. It's not about everybody being exactly the same and that there's no differences. We know that because later in Paul's letters, he often addresses particularized groups, men and women, young and old, um, slaves and free, Jews and Gentile. It's not about equality. It's about unity. This passage is about unity, that we are one in Christ Jesus. And Paul lists here the diverse chasms that often um, uh, uh, distinguish people and often make people combative against one another. Race, economic and social status, gender distinctions. Um, Many of us have run into various problems in our lives based on the grist that we have found between these categories. But Paul is saying here that Jesus Christ takes disparate, diverse people and offers them some bedrock core unity. Because Christianity doesn't deal with the periphery of your life, but the center of it, the center problems of of guilt and the need for acquittal, it puts us all in the same place. Christianity has a very powerful unifying core. It affects everybody because the message is relevant for everybody. Everybody is guilty before God, and everybody is in need of an external Savior, and both of which are presented in Christianity. Um, and so we, this is important, I think, because we live in an age which claims to desire community and connection and unity, but in action actually seems to prefer an atomized, particularized, self-created identity, often founded upon notions of ethnicity or gender or sexual orientation or clothing or appreciation of fine microbrews or weight loss, or muscle gain, or musical tastes, or gluten-related problems, um, and what we post or don't post, like or don't like on Facebook. That we really, in some ways, like to cultivate, carve out, if you will, a unique niche into which no one else fits but us. 
which seems to fly in the face of community, unity, and connection. Um, but the entire enterprise of inventing one's own identity is, is, is exhausting because the self is an ever-moving target, an ever-moving target. And this is, I think, what David Bowie discovered in his own life, that those who seek to find themselves, if you will, end up losing themselves because the self is something that is, is constantly changing. Heraclitus taught us this, that you can't step in the same river twice. It's always in motion. Uh, I, I had a, a friend who, uh, who's a priest, and they got fired very illegitimately from a job. And they were walking down the street after having been fired, and they had no money now, and certainly no prestige, and no home, and no ministry. And my friend had an epiphany. It's like obvious, but it's not obvious. An epiphany. They said to themselves, I'm discovering I can still be a Christian without being an Anglican priest. It's a remarkable thought. Everything else could be stripped away. All of those things that used to identify me could be stripped away, and I still belong to Jesus. And that doesn't change. Lose all the trappings, but you never lose the core. And see, as Christians, our core identity is not self-generated. It's a terrible burden. It has nothing to do, you know, the core of who you are. It has nothing to do with the size of your house or what kind of car you drive or what job you have, what you eat, and whether or not you have a lot of trophies. Um, identity is not chiefly defined by our facial features, our niche market interests, our level of education. These are all part of the story, but they're not the main element. To consider them the main element is idolatry. Uh, we are unified by a common clothing, a clothing that has brought us all together we are clothed in Christ, therefore defined uniquely and at our cores by him. I was talking with somebody who was going to leave their church. And they said, my church isn't, this is what they said, it's funny. My church is not a cool church. I'm like, that's interesting. I'm like, tell me more about that. They said, it's not a cool church. They said it, um, that a lot of the people are dorky. And they have these really social, socially awkward kids. And they, you know, they they, they don't listen to good music. And, and, and then there's like these hipsters. Now, I thought being a hipster was cool. I, couldn't, I can't do it. I mean, I want to, but I, I can't. Um, but they said there are all these hipsters who are trying to be cool, and everything, and that's now not cool, right? And then there are all these like blue-haired old ladies who don't like the hipsters. And so there's like this war. And so he said, I want to go to a church that has more people like me. I thought that was really fun and a little pretentious and ridiculous. Um, but here's the thing about cool church. We as Christians are baptized into one body, and we work toward um, we we work toward uh, unity um, with each other from from wherever we're coming from. And this is, by the way, not a blanket unity. Um, you can be unified in wrong ways and, and unified in wrong things. This is a qualified unity. We are unified under Christ and under His Word, um, or else it gets weird. Um, all, but all else, other than Christ and his word, is secondary, not nearly as important, and not chiefly, and, and not as identifying. And so I invite you um, to always go to a church. It, the label doesn't matter so much, I don't think, but go to a church which is true to the word of God, that really believes the gospel and is focused on the gospel, and who gathers around it and within it cool people 
and really dorky people and socially awkward people and young people and old people and people of different races, if there are different races around. Um, in some places in western Pennsylvania, you know, it just it tends to be rather white. Um, not entirely, though. Um, but go to a place that, that, that gathers all sorts of people around the same Christ, bending the knee to the same Christ. Uh, that's the vision. Um, that, that, that's, and that's our unified call, if you will, our vocation in this church. And so, um, so we have here in this passage a religious identity and a social unity granted through holy baptism. Parker tonight, Parker a Penny Grimm, who is to be baptized into this church, into Christ's church, really, more broadly, um, is a gift to all of us. She's a gift. Uh, she's a gift because, for, well, for many reasons, but tonight for all of us she's a gift because she's a picture of a religious identity and a social unity. That's what she is. The religious identity for all of us is this, that we have been submerged into and forever wear the Lord who can scrub out and does scrub out the crimson stains of our lives. And he marks us as his forever. And there's this social unity that we are adopted into a family which is connected in Christ. We're connected as repentant, baptized believers. And so I, I charge us all to be family, meant to be family to this little girl who's coming into this place through the sacrament. And so um, I want to close with talking about David Bowie. You, David Bowie, I hope, I really pray that he discovered uh, something about this insight of an identity that is gifted rather than self-generated. I hope so. I don't know. I mean, he was a man of some faith, though his faith is, the nature of it is uncertain. But you may know that Bowie's last album is entitled Black Star, and it included a very important song, which was entitled Lazarus, based off of the parable that we find from Jesus, of the rich man and Lazarus. And the song speaks about having a new identity from God, and unity that is achieved with other people. And it's, it's sung from the perspective of Lazarus, this beaten down poor man who you know, dies alone, surrounded by dogs, but then he goes to be with God. And I'll close with the lyrics of this, this uh, song. Lazarus sings, Look up here, I'm in heaven now. And I've got scars that can't be seen. And I've got drama that can't be stolen. And everybody knows me now. Well, that's a picture of what happens in baptism. That, that there's a promise of risen life. And there's a promise of connection with everybody. That you'll be fully known just as you are known right now by God. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.